Hi, Lenny. Hi, Nancy. Welcome to episode 63 of the Front Porch Book Club. The Front Porch Book Club is a podcast that meets twice a month. We like to dig deep into the relationship between characters and the worlds they live in. Grab your book and iced tea and join us on the Front Porch. Well, Lenny, I'm back from Boulder. It's October, and this month we're reviewing the number one New York Times bestseller, Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmus. In its review, the New York Times said this novel is, quote, irresistible, satisfying, and full of fuel. <laughs> fuel of fuel. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> Not even sure what it means, but I like it too. <laughs> and the book is kind of full of fuel. Yeah. <laughs> it got me going a bit. This novel, this is fiction, and we meet Elizabeth Zott an extraordinarily gifted scientist in the 1960s. But her colleagues are all male. She works at Hastings Research Institute, and they're unable to overcome their own sexism to recognize her value. And this sounds tragic and like it's going to stir up your blood a bit when you read it. Uh-huh. But <laughs> as the description of the book says, lessons in chemistry is laugh out loud funny, shrewdly observant, and studded with a dazzling cast of supporting characters. Lessons in chemistry is as original and vibrant as its protagonist. That's the end of that quote. And I say, yes, it is. It is funny. Yeah. And it is observant. And there are some crazy characters in this book. The protagonist, Elizabeth Sott, she is so original and so vibrant. Yeah. The daughter, mad. Yes. <laughs> the dog. 630. Yes. <laughs> the men in her life. Yes. Yeah. The lady across the street. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. Lots of interesting people. So why don't we get to talking about it, Nance? Sounds good. Well, it's not a spoiler to learn that this exceptional woman becomes the host of a nationally beloved TV cooking show, despite the fact she's a gifted scientist. Her cooking show is called Supper at Six. So we learned this in the first chapter, but she has no love for television or stardom or anything else. What she really loves is science. Through this book, we learn how she finds herself a national treasure and what she intends to do about it. Well, I did think it was tragic yeah. because it's the story of kind of women's rights and sexism and overcoming all of that, which is a hot button issue for me. Yeah. <laughs> so there's that part of it. But the characters are so interesting. And she is such a strong character that she will not be victimized. I love that part of her that she isn't going to take the guff from anybody. You know, she's going to stand up for herself. So that strength that she has makes you enjoy, I think, the book. Yeah. <laughs> so Nance, what did you think? Well, I really loved it. I thought it was very funny. And I think the funniness comes from these very astute observations that the various characters make about life and the way institutions work and society and each other. I think it would be a harder book to read if it wasn't so witty. It would feel like, oh, these people have all of these really sad things happening in their lives. It would just 
probably feel a little more like drudgery, but it's not at all. I mean, it's a page turner. Like the quote said, definitely laugh out loud funny. The characters are constantly surprising you with the things they say and do, which I thought was so fun. You just can't predict what's going to happen. Well, they're all operating on a different level of giftedness, I think. Yeah, right. Everybody is extremely bright in their own way. Mm-hmm. So you're looking at people who think differently than certainly that I do. Even her cooking show is really more of a chemistry class than it is cooking. She doesn't say salt and water. She says H2O and sodium. What is it? Nitrate or something? I don't know. I didn't do very well in for Chloride? I don't know. I, I don't know. So she uses all the technical stuff as she's going through, and her kitchen is like a science lab. So you're reading about people who are kind of odd and strange and think differently than I think. Yeah. <laughs> so it makes it interesting. It makes it a page turner. I loved the outside of this book, and I, I don't know if I said this the last time we met or not, but she came up on my Kindle as a book to read. advertisement constantly for like two months. And I thought, oh, I really like the outside cover. It's a cute little drawing of a lady, very cute with cat glasses and a pencil stuck in her bun. It looks really like a cute book. Well, it ended up being a cute book, but cute isn't quite the right word because she's so intellectual. Right. And she comes at life not by being cute or funny. She's very, very serious. Yes. And she's very, very smart. And other people might find humor in some of the things that happens to her, but she she does not find humor too much. She is more of a thinker than a feeler, really. And she obviously gets mad at some of the things that happen to her. In the book, Bonnie Garmus says she doesn't really even smile during her cooking show. <laughs> she takes her cooking show. We've got chemistry to do, ladies. That's right. <laughs> and she she really doesn't smile except for the brief period of time that she's with Calvin Evans. And neither of them are smilers. They're both scientists who have come from difficult backgrounds, but together they find a way to smile. (laughs) This book explores a lot of the casual sexism of the 60s. We weren't really too cognizant in the 60s. Oh, I absolutely was. What do you mean you weren't cognizant of the... Seriously? I mean, were you aware of what was going on in the 60s? Absolutely. I became more aware of the 70s. Do you remember the casual sexism of that time? I wouldn't even call it casual. I would call it blatant. Yeah. Blatant belittlement. Absolutely right. Okay. In the 60s, yes, I would have been eight and under. So maybe not in the 60s so much. Well, yeah, that's what I meant. We were just little. But in the 70s, absolutely aware that women were second class citizens and had to fight for what we had. Probably in about 70 or 72, one of the first things that hit me of wait a second, where do I fit into the world, was when my fourth grade teacher said, well, Linda, you're really good at math and not so much English, but that's kind of more of a male thing. (gasps) And I was like, disturbed. And I remember going home and saying, mom, am I like a boy or something? Because I'm good at math and I'm not good at reading and English. 
And mom said, no, you're fine, basically. (laughs) (laughs) As mom would do. It's okay for girls to be okay in that. But yes, I absolutely do remember being raised in an environment and in a culture of women being looked down on. Yeah, I definitely do as well. I mean, I was still getting patted on the behind 10 years ago by male colleagues. Oh, Nancy, no. Yeah. Oh, that's horrible. Yeah. Oh, my. I think the sexism that is portrayed in this novel is absolutely stuff that I think, yeah, women definitely went through this. Although no one has patted me on the rear end. I did get patted on the head once, and I was furious. And it was somebody in a position of power. There was a study done if the same paper was submitted under a woman's name versus a man's name. It was more likely to be published or more highly reviewed. It's amazing that this still happens. We still have some work to do. Yeah. In the book, she went to see the play Mikado. Mm -hmm. Did you ever see that play? Yes, I've seen the Mikado. I thought maybe you saw that play. Well, she brought a ticket, but when she went to it, she didn't like it. She thought the lyrics were racist, the actors were white, and it was blatantly obvious that the female lead was going to be blamed for everyone else's misdeeds. And that pretty (laughs) much is her life. She is blamed for stuff that aren't her fault. And it's at this performance, she finally has a real conversation with Calvin, who's a fellow scientist at Hastings. He has won all kinds of prestigious awards. He's famous for his research, but he respects her as a colleague and really the first person who sees her brilliance. And they, of course, fall in love. They have a daughter, Mad. She's brilliant. The neighbor, Harriet, is thinking about how unusual their daughter is, Mm. and she thought it was because... Elizabeth refused to accept limits, not just for herself, but for others, which I thought was really an interesting observation. She really does refuse to accept limits. She teaches her dog, 630, thousands of words. The dog becomes much smarter in his connection with her. She's always pushing Calvin. She just doesn't understand why people aren't learning and growing and becoming more. Where she is strong, I am weak. Oh, I'm more like the neighbor lady. (laughs) What is with this kitchen? Have you ever heard of Folgers? (laughs) We need the neighbor lady to come in and set the course straight. This lady's off her rocker. (laughs) We're going to make coffee. We're going to do Folgers. We don't have to set up a chemistry lab with filters and beakers. And I don't know all this other stuff to figure all this out. I do like that part that she is definitely a grower, but where she is growing is intellectually. I don't know Mm. if she grows much emotionally because she's kind of rigid and she doesn't understand other people's emotions. Mm -hmm. So her thirst for knowledge continues to grow and be interesting to her. But where her blind side is, is she doesn't understand how to work with people effectively. So it just sets up frustration. Why does the kindergarten teacher respond to mad the way she does? And then that just makes Elizabeth 
frustrated rather than Elizabeth knowing how to talk to the kindergarten teacher to understand her daughter, you know, so she's got some blind sides here, but as far as accepting limits to others and to herself, fantastic. No limits to yourself. That's wonderful. But Elizabeth has limits and so does everybody else. I do think of the studies where teachers are told that they are going to have a classroom full of gifted students and then that class ends up at the end of the year having accelerated more in their learning. But what the teacher doesn't know is they were just very normal students. Right. So I do think that the idea of seeing more potential in one another and probably ourselves is a really great way to think about each other. That's that growth mindset. Yeah. I think that growing up had more of a static mindset that so-and-so is smart, so-and-so is like this, so-and-so is like that, and not had that more of that growth mindset. But I'll tell you, that is something that I feel like I've been working on for the last 20 years or so to try to have more of a growth mindset for myself and other people. Mm. Well, I think part of that labeling of people isn't very helpful. Right. I mean, it is like a self-fulfilling prophecy. That's what you're saying. If you call your child an artist, they probably going to grow up to take art classes Mm -hmm. and learn how to do art and enjoy that as an adult. Mm -hmm. Same way with giftedness or anything else, for the most part. Let's just take Mad, for example. None of her teachers were really calling her smart. We could look at Matt and go, she's operating at a totally different level than anybody else. Right. But her teachers were looking at her saying, she's kind of a troublemaker. She's not playing along. She's not really following the rules. I'm asking for this. She is giving me that. Please straighten her out. Right. Nobody is seeing her potential. The thing about a lot of isms like sexism or racism is a lot of it I think can be very subtle. And the Mm -hmm. people who are making the decisions, for instance, on the scholarly articles, whether they'll be accepted or not, they don't think that they are being sexist or racist, but they are. So I think as an individual who might be experiencing that, you just think, well, I guess my paper wasn't as good. I guess I'm just not as good a scholar as that other person. And I think that is one of the really damaging things about sexism, racism, those kinds of things. I can't Mm. really imagine being a Black person and experiencing that because I think some of it is just so subtle. And I do remember that that's something that Trevor Noah said. He came to the United States And he much preferred the racism of South Africa because he could point at it. Everybody knew it. But in the United States, it was subtle. And it just causes you to question yourself. Mm -hmm. Interesting parallel there, Nance. Something to ponder about. So Elizabeth signs off her TV show, Supper at Six, with the quote, children, set the table. Your mother needs a moment to herself, which 
every time <laughs> that was mentioned, it just made me laugh. I thought that was so funny. What did you think of her sign off? <laughs> I, I thought it was funny. Like, uh, there it is. She's completely taxed out. She's doing everything from scratch and creating these meals. She knows about the nutrition, the chemistry, the reaction. And so her mind is, I think, spent by the time it's ready to sit down and let's socialize and eat and find out about each other's days. She's done. I can see her like walking off with her hand on her forehead going, I need a minute. Like I'm tapped out. Oh, I so I read this completely differently really? than you. Absolutely. I was tired by listening to her recipes. <laughs> That's all I can say. Yeah, she's a scientist. Are you kidding? Oh. She knows this stuff forward and backward. Yeah, so this is what she loves. She's sharing it. She's teaching other people about it. No, I felt like for her, actually doing the that part of the show was the easy part. I thought of her as a real introvert and just honoring the fact that women do need to set aside time for themselves, that their lives cannot all be about their children and the people that they're taking care of. (laughs) And this idea that she is deciding that in other households, This is how the children need to also contribute and set the table. And it's perfectly fine for moms to take time for themselves. I think you're right. That's my blind side, Nance. I think you're absolutely right. That's how she intended it to be. (laughs) She needed time by herself to regroup before getting to the kids, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas I was so exhausted by hearing the chemical breakdown and you need to eat eat this because this, oh my golly, that I was exhausted. It would be like, oh, let's get some people and some conversation going around the table, you know, come on kids, let's eat. (laughs) I was going to ask you about this because I thought you liked chemistry in school. Uh, No. liked chemistry. The only thing chemistry that I could get was the adding and subtracting of electrons and all that, you know, on that periodic table, they all had those numbers. Yep. That was the math part of it. I could understand that. Wait, okay. We're going to add two. Okay. I can do that math three there, four there. Okay. So that's a seven. I can combine Bind the the molecules. I uh-huh. can figure out the electrons and the pro- that easy. I got that. Put me in the lab <laughs> now. Okay, you're bringing back something here because I did sort of like the lab work because it was like it was like a kitchen. Okay, we need a cup of that or ounces of that. Okay, you have to kind of do the math real quick. Okay, and then you're adding and but. Science really wasn't my thing, Nance. Besides oh. the adding and the subtracting of the protons and stuff like that. I do remember failing our pretest <laughs> miserably. I think it was 10 or 15 questions. One of them was, what was the molecular compound of water? And I'm like, question mark, I don't know. <laughs> he asked all these questions and then when it came time to well let's see how everybody did so <laughs> what is the molecular compound of water h2o oh <laughs> I, maybe i have heard that somewhere 
but to pull that up, no, no. I mean, it just was not my thing. <laughs> I got D's constantly in science. I hated science. Really? Yes. Oh, that's D's, funny. D's, 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 D's. <laughs> Lots of D's. Oh, my goodness. Okay. I did not remember that at all. Mm, it was my trial. <laughs> One of my many trials. Part of that, it, it is the, it's the 60s and the 70s. Very few women went into science. Well, that's true. And so maybe the bar was set pretty low for some of us. I don't know. <laughs> I'm just glad I got out of the class and knew the molecular compound of water. Okay, I learned something today. I was always wondering where they got that. That's a chemistry thing, H2O. Huh, two parts hydrogen. One part oxygen. I think I can remember that now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So do you think that the title is kind of a double entendre? Because definitely she's a chemist. So there's the chemistry. The lessons in chemistry. She is giving lessons in chemistry right. in her TV show, Supper at Six. But is she also learning lessons in chemistry and chemistry being love because you mentioned she's a very logical person but she doesn't really know how to get along with others she starts learning that through calvin and she learns it through mad and then there's dr mason and harriet she starts learning how to get along with others and by the end she calls these collection of people her family. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think the characters have to come to her at some point. Mm -hmm. She definitely has, like I said, that blind side. So the people that are coming to her that she's interacting with, that kind of break in there, that show her respect, that give her the time of day, that understand how not to argue with her or to let her rant, mm -hmm. then she feels validated. And then they're able to come into her very rigid thinking world. Sorry, because she, she's got some rigidity there. Yeah. But they're the ones that are trying to make the headway into her. I don't think she tries to make the headway into anybody. Mm -hmm. I mean, her husband throws up on her at their first meeting. So they're kind of put together because she's got to get him home and she's a mess. So mm -hmm. it's these strange situations where she is interacting with people. She's going to call this guy out because his daughter is stealing lunch from her daughter. So she goes over there on her lunch break and she lets him have it up one side and down the other. And the guy's kind of like, huh? What? Like what? <laughs> What's going on here? But he makes friends with her because yeah. he makes friends with her. Yeah. She doesn't care about making friends with anybody. Yeah. She wants him to take care of her daughter because she's taking care of her daughter. Right. Now that you say that, there is a component of chemistry that I do get because I really like my nutrition classes. And that had to do with chemistry. Yeah. And I even think about that today, like some of the things that go well together and why yeah. do they go well together and all that kind of thing. So yeah, you would have loved watching her TV show. Mm, I don't know about that. <laughs> I do like the food. <laughs> I do like the food channel. <laughs> They'll talk about chemistry. I dump the thing, dump the thing, dump the thing. I do like watching that stuff. Mm -hmm. 
but yeah, not the chemistry part so much. I do know how eggs rise though. Like that to me was fascinating when I learned about eggs in a home ec class okay, and how some muffins tunnel up and they're too tall in the center. And what did you do with your eggs to make them too tall in the center? And when did they fly out? Did you overbeat them? You introduced too much oxygen? I forget. Maybe. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Something. But that had to do with the egg. I remember that. <laughs> um, Nance, did you have a favorite character in the book and which one? I thought they were also zany. I really, <laughs> I loved most of them. I think one of the characters that ended up stealing my heart at the end was Mrs. Frask. Okay. She is such a enemy of Elizabeth's mm-hmm. during the entire book. She's jealous of her. She is the person who fires her on the direction of the male boss, but mm-hmm. you know, she's in personnel at the Hastings Research Institute. She is just someone who is so critical of Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. She delights when Elizabeth fails. And then at the end, we find out that she had a similar experience as Elizabeth, and she had become so bitter about that experience that she had turned so much of it into dislike for Elizabeth, Mm -hmm. and they end up becoming allies. And I just thought that was such a beautiful turn of that character. I, I didn't see that coming. I didn't see that coming either, but yeah, she really did change. You saw a lot of growth in her. Yeah. She was not going to put her down anymore. Part of her thought process, I think, was save your own skin. I've been damaged enough by the men putting me down and I've got to figure out how to navigate my career to be successful and get along with these men. So if I follow the men's way of thinking and ostracize Elizabeth, then I say my own skin and maybe I can be something. Yes. Yes, exactly. And she is able to grow enough to the point where she's not only growing professionally and ends up in a better position, she is able now to extend some grace Elizabeth's way to, to bring her along and help her to be successful. Mm-hmm. So we talked a lot about arches and people in books because of your developing your play. Mm -hmm. So I can see why she was somebody that you really liked in the book. I'm going to say for me, I really liked Mad. Yeah. I really liked her. I liked her thinking and her character and a perfect blend between mom and dad. Mm-hmm. And I really like the dog. Yes. And I'm trying to figure out the dog plays a crucial role in this book because he is an observer in some ways, but he has his own personality and his own language and his own things going on. And he kind of has some human traits, like he helps and he does things that are really not dog like. So, Nancy, from your position and writing things. Why do you think the author created this dog character and gave him kind of human, kind of a human role in the book? I have no idea. I did read that the author has dogs. So people who have dogs love their dogs. 
I don't know if that was part of it. I've never read a novel that has a dog character like 630. He has his own backstory that we learn about. There's trauma in his back. (laughs) Right. He becomes so loyal and protective. And he actually is another character, Linda, who forces his way into Elizabeth's life. I mean, he decides he's going to follow her home from the grocery store. Mm -hmm. And he just becomes a part of her family that way, just by deciding so. Mm -hmm. I wonder if for the author, it was a way of honoring the way that pets become family members for us. And part of the way of doing that is the creating this interior life of a pet and what the pet might be thinking and feeling and observing. Oh, another person that has kind of forced themselves upon Elizabeth. Yeah. And all the characters also have their failures and weaknesses, not just Elizabeth, but they all have their blind spots and they all seem to have failed in different ways. And it kind of becomes a story of moving on from failure and finding joy. Yeah. Elizabeth finds, well, okay, let's think about that. The dog finds joy in just... Just a part of the happy family, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, but he like he fails as a bomb sniffing dog. Mm. And that's why he was abandoned. That's true. He fails to take care of Calvin on his run. Mm. But he succeeds in taking care of Mad mm-hmm. and Elizabeth. He he appoints himself as their guardian. Mm-hmm. So I guess I did really like the well-roundedness of so many of the characters who someone might label them a failure, like Harriet the neighbor who has a failed marriage that in the 60s, that would have been a big failure. Well, you just stayed together. Right. She broke away, though. She broke away and found love. Yeah. Elizabeth got her chemistry job back. Mm-hmm. But she was fired. Mm-hmm. So it's a book about growth through a bunch of zany characters. Mm-hmm. With the the history of our time where women were not in places of leadership, hardly even in the place of work, except for as secretaries. Right. So she was breaking all kinds of ground there. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I loved about this book was that this is a debut novel by Bonnie Garmus. And she's in her 60s. You go, girl. See, Bonnie's going to remember the growth of women from her perspective of just growing up and now wow talk about a woman of growth her first novel at 60 in her 60s isn't that fantastic nance i just love everything about that because so often in publishing it's about the new 20 year old and here's bonnie herself breaking these barriers and becoming a best-selling author with her first novel oh Well, she's an inspiration to us then because there's so many new things we can try when we get in our upper years, like putting on a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Nancy, what's a podcast? What do you want to (laughs) do? Look, you're a playwright. There's hope for us, Nancy. The world is our oyster. There's lots of things we can do yet. It's never too late. We can learn tennis. (laughs) We can learn pickleball. Yes. (laughs) That's exactly right. (laughs) 
Lots of new stuff to be had. I can still figure out the computer. That will be my life learning challenge. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we will have one more time to talk about this book, Nancy, because we're just scratched the surface here. That sounds great. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Our website is frontporchbookclub.com. Our episodes come out twice a month, the first and third Wednesday of every month. See you next time, Lenny. Okay. Bye, Nance. (laughs) I'm going to cut that part out. Okay.